Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Growing Pains on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlanta, Canada. I'm Matt George. And I'm David Campbell. Dave, we have a few minutes to let our hair down. I just uh, I just unbuttoned my sleeves. We're now on the podcast. It's the time when we can spend a little bit more time on what we were talking about. We just finished the, the fifth installment of Turning Point, the webinar series. That's our chance to rediscover and reimagine New Brunswick during COVID-19. So we're talking about post-secondary education. You and I have a few minutes to hash this out. Before we do, give some broad strokes of your presentation. Yeah, so I wasn't trying to be intentionally provocative. I mean, I, I have been looking at some of this data and it's not particularly, the trend line is not particularly good, right? We've seen a reduction in the number of students in the university sector, uh, even if you adjust for population or you adjust, adjust for the youth population. Um, you know, we've seen reduction in STEM uh, enrollments and so on. So, but there's lots of good things happening underneath that. But the general trend, so this is a really good time for a turning point conversation about what we want from our post-secondary sector. Love to hear Mary Butler talking about um, the actual population here that is is an adult population but is undereducated and the potential role for the college system to get them up in terms of their education and skills. We're talking about a productivity revolution here in the province. And if that's going to happen, we do need the existing adult workforce to become more educated or at least get more skills in the areas where we need those skills. Love to hear the university talking about a 50% growth rate mm -hmm. in their population and love to hear uh, the comments uh, about liberal arts education. Uh, big fan of liberal arts education. You know, they are the thinkers. The thinkers tend to come out of liberal arts in many respects. So the, the isolation of STEM was only one of those indicators I wanted to look at. It wasn't, it wasn't to suggest that, uh, liberal arts is a particularly bad thing. I think it's actually a, a good way to do this, a good format, because we have you introduce the data. The data doesn't come with any emotional baggage or emotional burden, and then we get panelists to contextualize the data and you to contextualize the data as well, which, which Paul did. And we're going to have the president of the university on the podcast very shortly, but he attempted to add to what you had been saying. So even, the even though the trend line is bad, like I said last week, what you do not reveal, you cannot heal. So we have to know that. We have to know the trend is bad, and then we can contextualize why that may be. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure the trend is bad, right? It depends on what you want. There was a time, and I'm old enough to remember this, back in the 90s where British Columbia had the lowest enrollments adjusted for the size of their population in the country among the 10 provinces. Uh, and they had a they had a well above average uh, university educated population. So what happened? Well, they just imported all their university graduates. So you have to think about what strategically you want from a post secondary education system. For example, if you had a province that was only you know fishers and forestry workers, would you need a large university sector? So, but when you think about the sectors that we're trying to grow, and we'll be talking about that in another turning point, when you think about the areas just globally that are growing, they do require uh, more education, not necessarily university, college as well, but university as well. So I think as a core driver of your society, both in terms of income potential, but also skills and, and, and ultimately industries and jobs, I think the post-secondary sector is going to be even more important, but it has to come back to what you actually want because it does cost the government, it costs the taxpayer hundreds of millions of dollars every year when you roll up universities, colleges, and, and the money they invest in private training or, or, or in mm -hmm. specific training. So that's a huge investment on the part of the taxpayer. So you do have to tie it to what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, and we actually did have an anonymous listener who wanted you to expand on the broader societal advantages of strong PSE, but because we can't call on that person by name, we won't, uh, we won't deal with it in depth. There's a couple of things that I want to nitpick before we welcome panelists on. And there are a couple questions specifically for you. So I'll have you respond to those as well. Let's talk about STEM for one minute. You mentioned that nationally, the growth in STEM was 36%. Um, correct me if I'm not saying this correctly, but the discrepancy between us and the national average 
that doesn't seem like 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 small marbles. That seems like significant. No. Yeah, it's huge marbles. We've seen other jurisdictions really ramping up their enrollment in those areas. Uh, if you talk to Kathy Simpson, you know, which you have, mm -hmm. she will tell you, for example, that Nova Scotia is really um, um, doing a lot better on a computer science graduate front and actually stealing a lot of business, potential business away from New Brunswick. So, you know, I think we have to understand, as, like I said, you know, if the if the de facto approach is, well, nobody wants to take STEM, so let's just roll down the number of people enrolled in STEM, right? Be very, very reactive as a post-secondary system. That, again, I think that's not the appropriate approach. I think you actually be very proactive. And if, if you're only getting 25 people uh, interested in a, pro in a program that has 50 slots, Mm -hmm. then go out and hustle the other 25 and fill that up to 50, right? Or if you only have 50 slots and you need 100, then double the number of professors and get the 100. But I, I think we have to be more proactive and hustle and get out there and sell our post-secondary education system, not just UNB. UNB is a great university, but all the universities and colleges. And, and hustle, you know, build a sales culture uh, and get out there and sell. And I don't think, you know, it's a sector that traditionally is known for being uh, in the selling business. But now that you're competing with universities across the country and, and around the world, you have to be hustling and selling the quality of our education here and the other attributes mm -hmm. associated with, with studying here. Two more questions, Broad. Um, we've had a lot of interest, not only through listeners, but also through the facilitators and presenting sponsors of this initiative, post-secondary education as a vehicle for R&D. Here's what I can foresee happening. I do think this is going to be the world's largest gap year. I do think there are going to be hypotheticals like this one. Let's say a new graduate from high school who's very tech literate decides to take a gap year. It's just not worth it to take a subpar online course and pay full tuition goes to work for a financial services company and the company loves him and he never goes back. And I should say he or she, of course. Um, does that does that further add an element of risk to the post-secondary edu ed education institutions becoming a strong source of R&D? What if these talented folks just go to companies and stay there? So we have heard even on our podcast uh, from... Uh, tech business owners that have said that university and even college education is not the concern anymore. It's the actual skill. So they are hiring people right out of high school if they're crackerjack at what, they're, what they need to be doing. So I think that's a bit of a short-sighted. I think you learn uh, in the university setting, you gain skills, you gain uh, background that you don't get if you just go right out of high school into the business sure. environment. But I do think that's a risk. I think we're seeing it in the U.S. A number of big tech entrepreneurs have said we would hire people right out of high school if they have the mm -hmm. skills they need. But I think in the long run, it, it might be a little bit short-sighted. But I think it's a risk, although I will say that there was a story in the Globe and Mail today that suggested in Ontario that preliminary enrollment outlook for the fall is pretty similar and actually slightly higher mm -hmm among Ontario-based students than it was. Interesting. So I, I think you are on to something possibly about the gap year, but if the gap year means staying in mom and dad's basement, no, they're going to rush back to the university with their mask and their, and their Purell in their pocket because a gap year usually means going to Indonesia and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, wading through muddy rivers. Mm -hmm. uh, but if a gap year is staying in mom's basement, no, I think, I think they'll go back to university and college. I think that's a really underrated point. And actually, I was telling the president that my sister, who just became an alumni of UNB, has just got her acceptance to the PEI veterinarian. Is that how you say it? Veterinarian college, the college for to train vets on the it's, island. Just be clear, clarify, though, it's the sure. Atlantic, right? Because they get funded by all the provinces. So it's not just the PEI. Yes, indeed. They're big time. And she's there's no way she's deferring because that's what it would look like. It would look like. I mean, it doesn't look like traveling through Western Europe. Yeah. So, so she will not be deferring. It's a, it's a really underrated point. I think you make a good point. Husoni was, was and is, he still is living, a very impressive person. And he's a panelist that's going to be coming on the podcast very soon. He speaks really eloquently. We're losing him to Ontario to go to law school. Great for him. Uh, but I'm worried about losing Husonis. I've told everyone I'm here for the long haul in New Brunswick. 
I'm long-term optimistic, but I'm short-term concerned. And I'm short-term concerned we're going to lose the Husonis. Yeah, it's a, it would be a loss, will be a loss. Uh, you know, he's very, uh, uh, seems like a very smart guy. For my first exposure to him as well. Um, you know, very strongly held opinions, knows what he's talking about, a good spokesperson for international students, uh, and he will be a loss. The challenge we have is we're a small province. Uh, and that's not just an issue with international students. That's an issue with domestic students as well, that it, certain types of careers will take you outside of the province. We do have law school in, the, in New Brunswick, and I hope they made a pitch uh, to try and keep him here. But at the end of the day, we're going to lose talent like that. He's spent time in New Brunswick. Hopefully he's got a fondness for New Brunswick. And like so many other people may find his way back here in a few years uh, after he's uh, he's. Uh, got his law degree and maybe maybe worked a bit in another jurisdiction indeed and a pretty a pretty good law school as i understand too so hopefully they did make a make a run at him but they lost out to to ontario at least in the short term and hopefully we do get him back herb is not going to like the answer to the last poll because usually like you said he asks you to take a side and then we see where the audience stands and it's a good way for us to take the audience's pulse we've had 91% majorities over the last few weeks in some of these questions. This question is 39%, 31%, 31%. So it's hard to know what the pulse of the audience is here, but I'll give you the 39%. The question was post-secondary education programming should be developed autonomously by the institutions with professors and instructors using their knowledge and expertise to determine the best use of PSE resources. Funding goes directly and unconditionally to the institutions. And mind you, that's a lukewarm minority, but all three responses were very similar. So maybe we had a lot of university professors listening because that (laughs) sounds like uh, that might've been the answer there. I mean, no, that was a very provocative question because embedded in the language there is, well, they've got expertise, they've got great knowledge. And so somebody might think, well, maybe they should. And then somebody else, well, what about industry? What about whatever? So I think that's a bit of a, you know, that's a herbism, uh, but it, it's a very important question. But I think ultimately the answer lies in a combination of those answers, in my, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, thanks. Let's, uh, let's welcome in our panelists. Thank you for being our lead facilitator for the fifth installment of Turning Point. You're back next week with more and we'll be back on the podcast. So let's transition to the panelists and thanks for popping by. Good stuff, Matt. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Dave. Take care. Okay, panelists, we're on the podcast. This is, um, it's always a breath of fresh air when we finish the webinar and get over to the podcast setting because we can let our hair down. We can be a little bit more relaxed. We can take all the time we need to hash out these topics. It's, it's much less formal and it's, it's where I feel comfortable. So welcome to all of you. We're going to get into some audience Q&A. We just wrapped up the fifth installment of Turning Point, which is the webinar and podcast series that is our collective opportunity to rediscover and reimagine New Brunswick for all of us on the other side of COVID-19. And, and Paul, I want to start with you because when we were talking beforehand about the first time that you and I had met, you encouraged me to reflect on my time at UNB by asking me what year I graduated. And no one had asked me that before. And I thought it was actually a really good icebreaker because I, I was reflecting on my experience of UNB and becoming now an alumni, I get the impression that you've reflected a lot on your position right now. You're the president of a university in the time of a pandemic. Uh, Do you want to reflect on what that experience has been like for you as the president of UNB going through COVID-19? Thanks. Thanks, Matt. That's a great, that's a great comebacker in terms of a reflection. Um, I mean, as you know, I started this job less than a year ago. And uh, when you come into a, you know, a new position and a in a country I haven't lived in in 30 years. I mean, obviously I had some big ambitions and a new strategic plan and ways to kind of build, you know, UNB, build on the strong legacy of UNB as a, as a, as a vehicle for social progress and change and economic development. But COVID's come and hit us straight in the face. And uh, obviously it's, it's had a big impact on our, uh, some of our momentum around the strategic vision, although we're still committed to that. But what it has done is, it in some ways, pulled our community together. And as I tell my colleagues that, you know, leadership's not tested when everything's going well. Leadership's tested when you have a crisis, when you have to step up to the plate, you have to step up to the challenges and try to make a real difference. And 
And I think our communities pulled together. Our students have been very cooperative, patient, and flexible. Our staff have rolled up their sleeves. Our faculty members have been working together. Our senates uh, and our board has been terrifically supportive. We actually having, even though we're in a virtual environment, we're having more meetings, <laughs> in some ways having better engagement. But we all recognize this is a challenging time. We're trying to work through it professionally, collegially, cooperatively. And we're going to try to get to a better normal in the future. You know, what are we learning from this virtual context? How can we be perhaps more efficient? Uh, but also knowing that we're a people-based institution. We have to find out ways to engage and connect. We can't lose sight of that. I know some people feel very isolated, so we have to be mindful of that. We have to provide all the services for our students, uh, psychological services, medical services, even if it's through the virtual context, because this a lot of people are hurting financially and culturally and socially. So we're mindful of that. But yeah, I didn't anticipate this when I was packing up my house in Australia 14 months ago. Um, and uh, did, so I didn't anticipate it, but that's the thing with this kind of job. A lot of things can change day to day and you just have to be adaptable, flexible and persistent. Yeah. And it's, it, that's a really good answer because it is a really, it is a true test on all fronts. It's a test mental health wise. It's a test institutionally. It's a test for all of us right now. And, and when I was thinking about you in this context, I was thinking, okay, let's say there is the world's biggest gap year. Actually, you know what? Let's say there isn't. David pointed me to the Globe and Mail that said Ontario's registration for September is actually on par, if not higher, for whatever reason than before COVID. So let's say let's say the world's biggest gap year never comes to fruition, but we still have to do the fall months externally, decentralized. How do we make sure the quality of the content is still there to make sure that that education is accessible to everybody and we'll stay with you before going to our, our next panelists? Yeah, no, I think that's a really important question because we don't want uh, people to think, well, online, I mean, when COVID struck, we had a week to pivot. Uh, so now we've had several months. So online doesn't mean second rate. And we've seen higher levels of engagement in some online courses. So we need to make sure we redouble our efforts that quality it has to be, the un you know, safety is one of our underlying principles in dealing with COVID. Quality student experience has to be our major commitment as well. So if that means ways to use technology to have better engagement, if there's ways, if we can say we've got a bunch of students in a different city, maybe we can connect them safely so they can have tutorial groups off campus. Uh, so that we have to be innovative and creative. But uh, I mean, independent of that, you know, we were committed to boosting our online and our micro credentials, but that only works if it's going to be quality. So the technology has to work. The faculty members and the, and the educators have to be comfortable and students have to feel support uh, if they're in Fredericton or other parts of Canada or other parts of the world that they can have the questions answered, that they can build community. So we're absolutely committed to quality. And but we know that, you know, for some of our faculty members, this has been a big adjustment. You know, we've heard from them six months ago to say, oh, I'm never ever going to teach online. It's horrible. It's second rate. And then some of them were exposed to it and they were like, wow, this is really quite amazing. Like I can connect with my students in different ways and so some of them, uh, I think, were exposed to this technology, and there may well be a silver lining. And as you said about the student demand in Ontario, I mean, our summer enrollments uh, were exceeded our budget. So, uh, so our summer enrollments for the online were quite a bit above what we expected. So some of that might be students trying to get ready earlier, but some of it might be uh, people are getting in to start the degree earlier as well. So the micro-credential movement is, is recognized. There's lots of people who say they work full-time uh, and they're looking to upskill or reskill. They don't have two years. Back to what Mary said, they're, they're, they don't want to take a year off work. They want to pick up a, maybe an online course or uh, maybe they're going to take three days off work and do an intensive three days. And they could pick up um, a LinkedIn credential or something on their CV that says, I have a credential in project management or effective writing. It's not necessarily a degree, but it could lead to a certificate, it could lead to a diploma, and so they can stack them. So there's a lot of universities that have been developing this space the last two or three years internationally. And what it calls attention to is that if I wanna reskill or upskill, I might not have that time to go do a two year MBA, but I wanna pick up some skills as opposed to a full degree. But can, can those skills be recognized? And so we're, we're looking to boost that 
because some people just might want to be a better public speaker or a better writer, a better communicator, but they don't want to give up a year or two to do it. Sure. No, I, I think that's even now, I think that will be highly sought after. And Mary, I want to come up to you for more reflection on that. I thought out loud to David about a possible scenario. Let's say one of our talented high school graduates who's highly tech literate gets courted by a financial services company when they do take a gap year, if they should take a gap year. What if that person, because of their technical abilities, maybe not their degree, but just because of their pedigree, their technical ability, what if that person never goes back to post-secondary? Maybe that financial services person, uh, company just keeps that person. How important right now is that movement of, of upskilling and just saying, we want talented, technical, experientially trained people coming into our businesses? I think there's a couple of things there. I love that scenario because it's not uncommon. Not everybody leaves high school, goes to post-secondary, goes into the workforce, right? Or or any number of linear paths. Most people zig and zag all over the place. Um, mm -hmm. So I really love that scenario because it's very realistic. Um, one of the downsides of that scenario in the current context is that if that, that high school student that goes off to work for the financial services sector comes back we're not very good as post-secondary institutions at recognizing um, and quantifying that experiential education that they learned that year on the job. And that's what people want. People say, I, you know, we have a lot of um, students that will come to us as mature students. Some of them, you know, in their 20s and 30s, but others, <clears throat> when they've spent 20 years working and they've achieved a management or a senior leadership role, in an organization and they want to shift careers and it's very frustrating for them when they come with skills talents and abilities that are not recognized and they have to do the full program start to finish just because we can't envision delivering it any other way we can't envision as uh, paul has alluded to with through micro credentialing parsing out those aspects that they need um, and getting them reskilled possibly while they remain in the workforce or back into it as quickly as possible um, so there's there's huge opportunities. One of the other things is that in the current scenario, if that person went off for a year, they'd probably only get so far before they did require some form of formalized training. Um, it would eventually become career limiting if they didn't have formal credentials. And so it could be one of those micro-credentialing experiences. Right. right. So how can we be part of the journey, not be seen as a threat to that career advancement, but a value add? and being able to meet them where they're at, when they need it, um, in, in whatever modality they need, you know, et cetera. So I think it's a great scenario. And I think scenario planning um, is the only way that we're gonna start breaking down some of our assumptions and really get to a place mm -hmm. of something different. Mm -hmm. I put out a call recently for five free consultation hours for companies who had never distributed before. I was reflecting on the strength of our private sector and thinking to myself, okay, how many companies in New Brunswick were able to decentralize without a productivity loss at the drop of a hat? Is it 15%? Is it 20%? Is it 25%? I don't think it's much higher than that. That also has analogies to education as well. I was listening to a great podcast by the CEO of WordPress who has thousands of employees and has never had an office. He just wanted to hire the best and brightest from anywhere on earth. If you have a Wi-Fi connection, you're on if you're the right person. How does an education institution adapt in a similar way? Because you can't, you can't really try to recreate the classroom virtually because it's never going to be quite as effective. You have to meet the tool where it's at. But if you do, you can introduce polling, you can introduce Q&A, you can have discussion. How do, you, how do you adapt in such a way that's attractive to students? And then after you, Mary, we're going to come down to Husoni. You know what I think is pre-COVID-19, that was a hard sell for people. They had a hard time thinking about technology as an effective tool for engagement, for meetings, for learning, for commerce, for seeing their doctor, uh, for getting their you know license renewed, like those sorts of things. I think the fact that we've all had to live in this world, adopt and use technology in ways that we never imagined, um, and having that as your learning environment automatically equips our learners with the skills that need, they need to be successful and to add value to businesses as they learn to adapt and pivot the changes in their business model. It could be brought on by something like a pandemic. It was certainly unexpected, 
but we knew technological disruption and advancements in in uh, artificial intelligence and virtual reality and um, machine learning and all of those things were going to radically change the way we live and work. So, you know, disruption in whatever form it comes in um, necessitates that adaptability and that ability to um, have digital literacy and work together with technology, leveraging both the human behaviors and um, strengths with those of the machine or, or technological yeah. environment. So I think the fact that we're bringing the education into that realm only equips those students through the learning process with those skills and literacies to, to add value to the workforce. Yeah, Husoni, we really wanna get you involved here, but I just wanna stay on the institutional side for one more minute. Let's say our companies do decentralize and distribute semi-permanently, or at least take some facet of the office and make it digital. When they realize that, and there's no productivity loss, maybe there's even a productivity gain, there's nothing that's keeping those jobs in the hands of New Brunswickers or Atlantic Canadians. That job can be done from anywhere on the planet. That makes me believe that your graduates, and myself included as a 21st century graduate, I graduated from UNB, Paul, in 2015, we're going to have to really step up our game (laughs) because there's going to be a lot of competition. So you're going to have to be producing very tech literate very competitive graduates. Paul, what do you think about that? No, it's a really it's a really relevant question, Matt, because and it goes back to the poll results. We need to have students who graduate uh, and they can be competitive globally because it, there is a global race for talent right now. You see it with uh, through immigration policies. You see it through post-study visa rights for international students. And if uh, places like Australia or, or, or the UK dip down, Canada benefits. So... So we, we, we're going to focus on flexibility. We need to focus on inspiring students, giving them first quality education. I mean, if I reflect on my own journey, I started at UMB in 83. I graduated in 89. I was in four or five different faculties. But those that foundation I got allowed me to pursue higher education in the States and then to work in Australia. And so we can produce people who become global citizens but we we'd ultimately want them to stay and or contribute or to come back uh, because, you know, the Brunswick economy needs innovation and needs entrepreneurship and whatnot. But you're absolutely right. Um, mm. the, the world is going to become closer together through the online, through the globalized economy, the use of the Internet. We've already seen that, I think, in the last 10 years or so. We're going to see more of it in the context of the post-pandemic recovery. Yeah, and given that answer, I want to mix in an audience question for you, Paul. Anne, hello, Anne. Thanks for listening. If we can do online education and universities elsewhere provide access to their programs online, then why do we need to offer programs here? How can UNB compete head-to-head with the Harvard and Queens of the world? That's for you, Paul. Thanks, Anne. So thanks, Anne, for your question. It's a great question. This is an issue that's been around for a number of years. I mean, online education is not just new. And it's not new to UMB. We've had online education for quite some time. The issue that we're looking at now is how do we expand the offerings? The issue that universities will have to confront is working with other other universities or providers. Uh, do we look at recognized prior learning or recognized courses and give them give them credit, if you will, if they want to get a UMB degree? So those are the kinds of innovations that need to happen going forward. Uh, so there's nothing stopping students in New Brunswick taking courses at Athabasca or University of Phoenix, or indeed uh, in the Ontario system and elsewhere. Uh, they can take courses. I have one of my colleagues at UMB who took courses at uh, University College London. She did a master's mm-hmm. degree. So, so that already exists. The issue is, however, UMB wants to get in that space because we think we want to get in that space to a larger extent because we think we have something unique to offer. We have some, some great programs, uh, and we have a local market, but also we think there's an interprovincial and a global market who might want to access some of the things we have to offer the world through our great educators, our great faculty, our great teachers. So, so it is a market. It is an area that we will develop in. We're not going to walk away from it because I think the world's going to look at more accessibility, more flexibility, and some of them might be micro credentials. Some might be, um, you know, even intensive learning. You have people come to campus for three three days to do some intensive things, supplement it by online in a blended sense. So we, we want to be in that game and we're going to in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I, I think that's great. It's a game we need to be in. Husoni, David and I, and also the audience reflected on 
how well you speak. Um, I, I personally support your decision to go get yourself educated in Ontario, but as a citizen of the province, I must also tell you, tell you it is, it does feel like a loss in some way. And the reason I say that I, I'm engaged with the UNB MBA program in St. John, and that program is highly diverse, like the overwhelming majority, incredibly talented, global talent. And I looked around the room, I was at a sales class and I was judging pitches for an entrepreneurship class. And I looked around the room and I thought, my God, if we lose over half these people, that's a missed opportunity, a huge missed opportunity. So again, I have to ask you to expand on that value prop. I mean, how does New Brunswick become a place where the Husonis of the world come and not, and not only stay, but, but thrive and really seriously contribute? Yeah, um, I'll start by saying that I've really enjoyed my experience here in New Brunswick and um, I appreciated specifically the opportunities that I've gotten on my campus at St. Thomas University um, and the interactions that I've had uh, with the community. Um, I found support um, in the community, but I also recognize that I also have the privilege of, you know, having um, what quote unquote a Canadian accent um, and I don't know what else would probably give me some kind of booster um, in, in the New Brunswick context. But I think first we need to start talking about international students and immigrants beyond just the economic contributions. I think we should kind of humanize uh, international students. Um, I think the only time when, when we bring up the benefit of international students, it's solely focused on oh, they bring this much money or here's the business opportunity that they, they can bring, which is kind of, um, this is, might be a stretch, but kind of objectifying and dehumanizing that I'm just some kind of um, tool to enhance the labor market or the economy. Um, but I think we should also look at the social impacts of international students and what they bring to our university campuses. International students bring uh, diverse views and perspectives that actually help um, to create safer spaces in the province, but also um, give us a global, or the students here in New Brunswick, a global education. Because a lot of times when content is taught within the classroom, for instance, um, it's kind of like a westernized perspective. Um, but I've been able to comment and say, what about this perspective as someone from um, a developing country? Or what are the social impacts of international international students and immigrants to our community. So I think um, we need to develop some kind of, and also the barriers as it relates to cultural barriers, so more integration. The province needs to invest in uh, anti-racist strategy to address these kind of barriers and also cultural competency, not only on our campuses, so international students feel welcome there when in their interactions with um, university faculty and staff because they understand um, like cultural relativity in the sense of um, the difference in culture and accents and all of that kind of stuff um, that can create barriers for international students, but also on the provincial level, as I mentioned before, um, looking on how we can best support international students because we recognize the financial contributions of international students and how they support our communities and contribute our communities even beyond um, just paying an international tuition, which um, quite frankly is is the reason why universities are surviving. It's the international student tuition because of the lack of government funding, but international students contribute to our local economies. Um, when my parents send me my monthly allowance and how I spend that um, on local businesses. So just beyond the university context. So we talk about the benefits and the money that international students bring here. But when the conversation arises as to increase supports for international students, then it's like, oh, they don't, bring that much or um, they don't pay taxes. So why should the government be giving them um, money? So I think there needs to be that tough conversation around supports for international students and the accessibility of education for international students. I think if New Brunswick wants to be competitive, they need to be more accessible. One thing that I worked on this year was kind of putting caps on international student tuition because it, there's no regulation for domestic students um, through memorandum of understandings uh, with the government, the provincial government actually regulates domestic tuition so it doesn't go up more than 2%. Was there no 
um, such regulation for international students. So the universities can, there's no predictability for once, because when I came here, I was like, okay, for instance, I'll, I'll just put out a number that it's going to be 10000 a year. So I told my parents that I was like, okay, can we afford this? Okay, let's make this decision. Um, but then the next year it increased by 5%, in some cases more than 5%. Um, so that increase, that unpredictability will result in a lot of international students. They might be, when they initially made that decision, might have been able to afford the 10000 but then a 2000 increase per year, it quickly becomes inaccessible. And I think it's counterproductive for us to be having the conversation about um, increase enrollment. We need more international students here, but then making it increasingly inaccessible um, for international students to afford an education here. Not all international right. students are rich, but there are a lot of talents from poor uh, international students from poor countries with um, or poor families with a lot of right. talent and a lot of potential that they can bring. So I think just overall supports um, for international yeah. students and making our campuses more inclusive, which I can also talk about, but I don't want to um, take up too much time. So I'll end it at that. And then I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. Looking at the holistic view of, of what a diverse community is, is something that's very close to our, both of our hearts. And a listener I think has taken the words out of your mouth. This is from Karina. Hi, Karina. We don't want to limit international students to those from wealthy families. How can we make access to, to our post-secondary institutions more equitable? And I think Karina Husoni has has addressed that, but Husoni, if you did want to address Karina um, specifically, you're free to. Yeah, for, um, that is a, is a great point because we don't just want um, rich international students to come here. And also some poor international students make sacrifices, their families, because they don't have access to government loans, make sacrifices for them to come here for the first year. But then because of the exponential increase in tuition, they have to drop out because they can't make that extra $2,000 demand. So I think um, one would be some predictability and regulation um, surrounding international tuition so they know um, what to expect when coming here, um, but also more financial supports on the university side. So scholarships and bursaries specifically for international students from low-income families. So we're not missing out on that talent pool, um, but also government funding for international students um, in the form of either needs-based bursaries or um, just including international students in the calculation for um, government funding and a, a thing that could be incorporated in that is some kind of contract um, related to, okay, if you get this amount of funding while you're here, then you stay and work in whatever sector or working this job. So you come, the government might supplement um, the tuition and your funding to be here, um, but then they pair you with a job related to your field um, and you work there for five years or 10 years get your PR. And then I think that will ultimately result in more international students actually staying here after because then if you spend five years in a position and you get comfortable, um, you feel included and you felt supported by the government, which is a great opportunity, you're going to be more likely to stay here. So I agree that um, tuition is definitely um, make makes accessibility a, a problem um, for international mm -hmm. students and also low-income students as well. So I think more needs-based yeah. bursaries for low-income students is a good um, thing as well, or a good idea. Thanks, Usoni. And thank you, Karina, for your question. It's a great question. Mary, you had a lot of good comments on your hiking analogy. And this is from John. Hi, John. I really like Mary's hiking analogy. If that's the case, should the backpack for all students, regardless of which institution they attend, be filled with critical thinking, verbal and written communication skills, and global awareness. And then we repack those backpacks with role-specific labor skills along the way. That's a really great question. And, and uh, I love the way you're thinking, John, because when you look at what employers rank as the top skills and competencies that they look for, it's very much the list that you just said, as well as a whole bunch of other interpersonal skills. Um, and when we ask individuals what's important to them or what types of training that they're looking for, they often cite those same things around critical thinking, problem solving, project management, um, all of those, those other types, communication, um, all of those types of things. So I think it is important for us to take the long look at what does that initial um, amount or preparation look like 
to enter the job market? And then how do we create a parallel relationship that says you you no longer have to leave, or if you're gonna leave, it's gonna be something that um, that is almost unnoticeable in terms of impact on, on your work, that allows you to continue to achieve that education and training as you progress through your career. And you know, and when we think about a long hike, and I mean, I've done some multi-day, never like a three month or an Appalachian Trail type adventure, mm-hmm. but you plan pit stops, right? You couldn't possibly carry everything that you need. You, you don't know yet what you're gonna run into, what weather you're gonna have, what challenges you'll experience if you decide to take a different path um, or things like that. So you have to be able to replenish and address things as, as they happen along the way. And so I think that's really important um, for us to think about is that there's no way for us, even with the advantage of employer input into our program and curriculum, to, to know what possible pathways like our graduates are gonna take, what they're gonna experience, what sort of social, economic, and political changes and and other types of disruption are going to impact their career. So it's almost a futile attempt, you know, at at preparing them. So I think we just need to to rethink it and think more about being a partner in education instead of um, that one shot load you up. Yeah. And, and Paul, it strikes me that you're, you're a very thoughtful person and you would certainly have some thoughts around graduating well-rounded individuals on my bookshelf behind me. People are probably going to get pretty sick of seeing my bookshelf every day, but I have a book called range by David Epstein. And his argument is that the 21st century marketplace is made for generalists. Now, of course, if you're a surgeon or whatever, you must specialize. That is the case if you're in a technical, uh, industry, but does UNB think critically about how to graduate well-rounded people? It's, no, it's an important question, Matt. Uh, it, it's thinking about the kinds of um, changes coming forward. So certainly in the professional schools, nursing, engineering, uh, medicine, et cetera, you, you need to have a certain kinds of skills to uh, be proficient in those. But ultimately we're talking about people entering the workforce uh, and they're building their careers, the need to be adaptive. And uh, I've been articulating or saying for months, if not years, um, you know, is a great example. We need people who are articulate, who can, who can problem solve, who can write, who can communicate, because the jobs that people are doing in 2020 and 2022 could look very different by 27, 2027. So they're going to need to be adaptive. And those kinds of skills, problem solving, communicating, writing, uh, having a good sense of global citizenship values, they will, those are success factors. Those are what many employers are looking like. That it's not just the brilliant, uh, the brilliant person, but the person they can all work with. Who can be a team player, who can yeah. actually have the kinds of values that they want their organization to express. So, sure. so I mean, we're still on a journey at UNB of looking at curriculum reform and working with our faculty, our senates. But I think there are opportunities for us to infuse some more liberal arts, some values-based education citizenship, global citizenship, human rights, appreciation, appreciation for truth and reconciliation, uh, appreciation for diversity, inclusion, all of those things that we should be looking at so that the graduates of the future can adapt into a, to a, a, a better world and contribute to a new normal, a better normal. Sure. We have another listener question for you, Paul. This is Gaston. Gaston has, has kind of nailed the turning point model. He's asked a lot of good questions throughout the course of this thing, his name keeps coming up. What we really want to do is, yeah, we're digging into some of the tough realities of this province, but we also want to find something useful there and unpack it and take it into the future. So Gaston asks, it's, it's kind of an 80-20 question, where do we truly want to excel when it comes to PSE? Is it R&D output? Is it higher enrollment? Is there an 80-20, Paul, on, on what's, our, what's, our, what's our top shelf ingredients here for successful PSE? I actually think we need both. Uh, I mean, if I talk about UMB, but then if we talk about the whole sector, we have a diversified sector. We're the only comprehensive English-speaking university, but we've got, you know, St. Thomas and Mount A, and we have the, the community colleges who have a really important role to play. So the nice thing about expanding R&D is that you're expanding innovation. You have the chance to expand translational knowledge that can lead to economic, social development, new industries. Look at cybersecurity and uh, smart grid. Those are great examples. Those industries would not exist like they do today if it wasn't for the research that was happening 10, 15 years ago. 
uh, small modular nuclear is another another one as well. So, but if we just went in the R and D side, we're missing opportunities to expose more students to great opportunities for learning and also contributing to producing. So, and many of the big research universities, they actually need to grow the student numbers because they want graduate students. They want students who are contributing to the labs and the master's degrees and the PhDs, both in the social sciences, liberal arts, and the hard sciences. So UMB is on that journey. So we actually need both. And uh, our, our expansion of that we're forecasting in the strategic plan is to disproportionately grow graduate as well. So the graduate growth will help contribute to the R&D. Sure. Can I layer Mayor, on, on that real quick? Uh, 100%, 100%. Just interrupt me whenever you want. Oh, sorry. So I, I really like um, Gaston's question and uh, I certainly agree with Paul's answer. And what I would add is when we talk to employers about our graduates and whether or not they're equipped for the workforce, what they say is we know that graduates coming out of MBCC have the skills and competencies to do the job. What we're looking for and what we want to know is, should we be taking an MBCC application and putting it on top? Do they not only come equipped with the technical skills and abilities, but also those other skills that, that John talked about before and that Gaston's talking about in terms of research, critical thinking, problem solving, one that's personal to NBCC is um, community leadership and service learning. We also have entrepreneurship. But what employers really want to know is, in terms of differentiation, are your graduates going to enter being able to do the job as well as add value to my company? Are you going to help my company adapt and change and become more profitable, more productive as a result? So I think it is a blend of all of those things, which is a lot to ask of both individuals and institutions. But to Paul's point, it's key. I also would um, like to interject here um, just for a brief comment. And I just go back a little bit to the, converse, the conversation related to the soft skills and transferable skills like critical thinking. Um, research skill, effective communication. I think those are at the core of the liberal arts education. And I think a lot of times when we have these conversations around the future of the province, we tend to focus um, only on the skills-based um, technological STEM aspect, that that's the only thing that we need. But I think we need to have a broader conversation around how the, the liberal arts education can also be used to propel or, or province um, forward. Um, liberal arts graduates have um, a passion for social change, not only that transferable aspect, because the job market is consistently evolving. We're living in a world that is evolving. So we need people that are able to adapt and change the, the, the job market. Um, and that's something liberal arts graduates have to offer. Um, but only but as well, people who are passionate about social change um, and making our communities more inclusive, because I think that's also a key component in economic development. If people don't feel like they belong, if people don't feel like their contributions are valid, um, then it will lead to low productivity and out migration. So I think we need people who are also passionate about social change and um, making people feel included in our communities and multiculturalism so that people feel um, the need to contribute to this province because they'll feel like this province also belongs to them. So I think that's also an important um, side and an important aspect is the social aspect that um, we should also consider not just limiting the conversation to um, the economic contributions of STEM and um, skills-based learning, which I agree are also important. And um, yeah, it is a balance of, of interest in the sense um, balancing that with um, the those skills that the liberal arts education teaches, and I think both are are invaluable. I don't think the conversation should be one or the other. I think the conversation is how do we find um, that optimum point where um, both of them are valued and seeing the role of both of them and how we can um, utilize both of both both sides. Yeah, thanks, Usoni. One more audience question before we go into the introduction of the final poll. This is for Mary from Greg. Hi, Greg. How can we improve experiential learning opportunities, co-ops, internships, etc.? I think there's lots of opportunity, and, and I'm not going to pretend to have the answer today, Greg, because you know I I challenge everyone to um, come together and co-create 
uh, a 21st century model of education. So I'm only one voice and one perspective, and I think we need to add a lot more, particularly from the employer community. So in our current, in our current model, we were at risk of having students not graduate because with the emergency orders, they were no longer able to, students were no longer able to access campuses. Um, without completing those critical components in labs, shops, clinicals, they would not be eligible to graduate. And when we think about supply chain in terms of our labor market, by not graduating students, we're effectively cutting off our labor supply. And at a time when the province is reliant on that labor supply to recover and ultimately become resilient as a result of the, the pandemic. So <clears throat> we were already at risk with that model. We already had challenges with the model. For many of our, I mean, we've talked about cybersecurity, we, we've talked about you know, some of the STEM, so in some of our engineering programs and, and information technology programs, we're finding it difficult to engage employers in those practical placements because they say, hey, eight weeks is not enough. Our systems, our infrastructure are so protected and so unique to our organization that it's just not worth it. We want students desperately and we enjoy having them. But for that period of time, it's just not worth it to us as an employer to, to bring those students in as practicum students. So we already knew that we needed to work on this. Um, so what we believe is the future is this idea of learning integrated work. So I'm working, I, whether that's part-time or full-time, we know that the majority of our students need income in order to sustain themselves or their families, to pay for their education, their car, et cetera. So we have working individuals trying to balance a full-time load at school, and in a lot of cases, a full-time load at work. And they're, they're just stressed out and stretched out in every way imaginable. So if we could find a better way of integrating the applied components, which is where deep learning happens, right? You have the, the theoretical and you, and you begin to absorb it, but it's another to apply it in, in not a safe case scenario that, that's been tested and is prescribed, but in a real dynamic um, work environment where you have personalities and conflict and changing variables on a regular basis. So those deep learning opportunities for application throughout their program, as opposed to just a one-shot deal at the end. Um, I just, I would love to work with our employment community to figure out how we make that happen. What's the value proposition for them? I can kind of see what it is for, for students. I lived it myself, not that it was structured that way, but it, it, I couldn't afford to do it any other way. Um, and then what does that, what value does that add to institutions in terms of our delivery and our value proposition to students when we're recruiting and competing, as you said, in an increasingly diverse and widespread market. Right. Paul, I want to come to you with the results of the poll. Herb is not going to be pleased with the results because usually what happens in a Herb question is you get an overwhelming majority and an underwhelming minority. So you know the pulse of the audience really easily. Here, he has almost caused a perfect split into thirds, not even halves, into thirds. But there is a 39% winner. And thank you for those who were able to stick around and engage with the poll. The question was this, post-secondary education programming should be developed, and the answer, autonomously by the institutions with professors and instructors using their knowledge and expertise to determine the best use of PSE resources. Funding goes directly and unconditionally to the institutions. That was 39% of listeners. And then I'll go to Husoni for the second. But can you can you just reflect, Paul? Is there anything meaningful within that split? Well, I guess it shows that, you know, there's different views on that issue and, and where the best investments are going to flow and where they should be going forward. And, mm -hmm. and there's different models of how we move forward, you know, with uh, students and creating opportunities and building knowledge and building skills and education. So that's sure. uh, that's that's not a herb finding, but uh, <laughs> it probably reflects the diversity of our uh, of the spectrum of training and education that we're trying to build. Yeah. And Husoni, 31% of listeners said by students where their choices will direct resources to programs in demand. Funding goes to the students who choose their programs and institutions So putting more power in the hands of students. Do you want to reflect on that just quickly? 
Uh, yeah, I think um, that's a very important point that people who are pursuing a post-secondary education are not mandated or um, overly encouraged to go into specific fields because I think that kind of um, limits the passion. I think people should be able to study what they're passionate about. And once people are passionate about what they study, I think that's where um, the innovation will come. Um, that's where the change will come because people... Um, are interested, quite frankly, in what they're doing, and they're willing to put more more effort into that. So I think um, students should definitely have a say, but I also see the value of having um, kind of a collaborative approach. I don't like these questions uh, kind of polarizing, <laughs> um, because I think all of those um, inform the way we should move forward, because um, we need the government um, kind of also showing us what the labor market demands are. Um, yeah. So then students know, okay, they can actually balance that to say, okay, this is what I'm passionate about, but I might not be able to find opportunities in that. Um, but I'm seeing a demand here. So I might study that first, get a job, and then leisurely study um, what I'm actually passionate about. So I think um, it, 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 all, it all varies. But, um, yep. but I'd also briefly um, like to touch on... Actually, never mind. I don't. don't <laughs> yeah, very, very, very briefly, Mary. The third result of the poll was that it was government uh, determines based on the labor market. Just very briefly, tell us what you think about that split before we get into Q and A and segments. You've been very generous with your time. I'm walking the line. I think everyone <laughs> needs to have input, and there's a real reason for that. We've talked long before COVID about the skills mismatch right, that employers are seeking skills and competencies that don't exist in the, the current labor force. And we're talking about a labor shortage. Um, and we know as post-secondary institutions, there's often a disconnect between labor supply and labor demand. There are sectors crying for students. So in the past, we had, particularly in New Brunswick, where we were trying to grow our IT sector, we had great demand from employers, and we had a very difficult time recruiting students to those programs even though there were well-paying jobs available to them. Right now, as a result of COVID, the accommodations and food sector has been incredibly hard hit. Well, our programs are seeing a decline in applications as well. The prospect of jobs is bleak. The future is uncertain. So it's very difficult to recruit people to those areas when there's a lot of uncertainty around it. So as long as we have a skills shortage, a labor shortage, and a mismatch and disconnect between labor supply and demand and, and skills that were graduating and are required, we can't leave anyone out of the conversation. Right. Right. Good answer. Okay. We're going into our segments. This is where things get exciting. This is my favorite part of the day by far, where we ask you off the cuff to give us an answer to three questions that we've been dealing with throughout the course of this experience. And we're going to start with Mary. Mary, you unfortunately get the uh, the unfortunate position of going first. We're going to play Herb Emery's favorite podcast game. It's called Overrated, Underrated. Okay. Okay. Very <laughs> simply, I offer you an idea and you tell me in your mind if that's an overrated idea or an underrated idea. Okay. okay? Clear as mud? Okay. Clear as mud. Okay. Someone graduates high school and they come to NBCC and they really want to see... What's what? Do I want to go to UNB? Do I want to go to NBCC? And this student, they don't necessarily know what they want to learn, but they're very curious and they want to learn how to learn. Is that applicant an overrated applicant or an underrated applicant? Underrated. I think we focus so much on meeting students' needs and we're so afraid of disappointing them, of wasting time, of wasting financial resources, that we, we so want to help them get it right. And, and we want to make sure that they're on one path to save time and money. But that's not always the goal. Yeah, good answer. What was, is, or could be a New Brunswick turning point? Okay, I don't want to get in trouble or have to hide or pull my <laughs> mask up further. But um, I think a turning point from New Brunswick is to move from followership to leadership. Mm. We want to be an innovative, smart advanced province. We want to be leaders, not just in Canada, but around the world. And yet more often than not, what we do is we look around to see what others are doing. And not that that's not a good sign of leadership. It, it certainly is. 
but you don't become a leader by following others. Learning from others, yes, but not necessarily always following. Sometimes we want the safety and security of adopting practices that have been developed and are, are now validated through someone else's pain for what we think is gonna be our gain. And we forget to look at our unique context, our unique strengths, challenges, and opportunities, and, and come up with something that's New Brunswick. And, and I think that's where we really have an opportunity to shift our thinking, to look at our own context and say, we have it within ourselves to design our future and mm. change our sales and move forward accordingly. Mm. What is one thing that New Brunswick needs to unlearn? I'll stick to my theme earlier and say we need to unlearn attachments. Mm. We need to think about whether we're attached to uh, systems, policies, and processes, and therefore we design our communities and our province and our, our social and economic goals around them, or whether we attach to our purpose. Who is the province that we want to be and become? And then look at what those needs are and design everything around that mm. instead of designing it to suit ourselves and our own our own needs so i think mm. we need to switch from um being systems process and policy driven to being purpose driven thank you mary dr masril to you you also get to play overrated underrated we know that covid has forced us to do many different things on the learning front but learning face to face physically together is that overrated or underrated? It's overrated. And I think this is this is shown. A lot of people said that you can only learn face-to-face. -face. Mm. And I think uh, many people will probably be uh, surprised and illuminated that there's other ways to have deep learning and meaningful learning and problem-based learning, and it doesn't always have to be face-to-face. -face. I mean, I used to lecture lots, and I'd have 300 students, and the ones in the back row, when they were checking their Facebook or falling asleep or talking to their person beside them. That that's that might be hard to do it online if everyone's looking on the Zoom camera. So, sure. uh, so yeah, the face-to-face -face is probably overrated. What was, is, or could be a New Brunswick turning point? I think the, it's, it, it builds on what Mary said. It's about belief, belief in ourselves, that we've got a lot of creative thinkers. I mean, the New Brunswick economy I remember years ago when the uh, when there was a major world global recession, I talked to my brother. He said, well, we didn't have it here because we've always had to innovate because we have been the place where we're not economically plentiful. So we've had to do more with less. And we have to see that as a strength of resilience and adaptability and belief that we have, you know, homegrown talent. We need more people to come to New Brunswick, to come to our educational institutions, contribute to our community. We need more diverse community, but we need self-belief that we can do great things here in little old New Brunswick. Yeah. Agreed. Amen. What is one thing New Brunswick needs to unlearn? Um, that, that is, uh, in some ways, it might sound contradictory to what I just said, but I think we have to unlearn the, the, the belief that we've always done it this way in the past. We must do it this way tomorrow. Right. And that's really relevant in a university context that has lots of different structures and ways of doing uh, but it's also relevant to growing the business community. So we need to unlearn a commitment to ways of doing things with an open mind to know that there's probably better ways and new ways to do things to be more effective. Right. Husoni, down to you. Overrated, underrated. Making it mandatory to have Canadian experience before being hired. I think that is uh, overrated. Um, Actually, that's, a, uh, that's the barrier that a lot of uh, recent immigrants face when they move here, um, especially highly specialized immigrants, lawyers, doctors come here, um, but they still can't get hired because, oh, you don't have any New Brunswick experience related to the labor market or even post-secondary experience because we have people coming here who are highly qualified um, but are unable to, to find jobs within their fields and in, within their passion um, because it's seen as less valuable um, than a Canadian education. So I think that is uh, definitely overrated and it's something we need to move past. I don't mean to fluff your pillows here, but I think it's drastically overrated. Yeah, you're 100% really, really, right. Definitely, uh, what was, is, or could be a New Brunswick turning point? 
I think the turning point for New Brunswick would definitely be um, immigration. Um, I think New Brunswick needs, I, I saw the immigration um, strategy that we released, but I think um, we could definitely do more. I see the intention behind it, um, that the government has the intention to increase immigration numbers and wants more people here. Um, but again, when they come here, a lot of people, the barriers, if they don't have a Canadian education or Canadian experience, they have issues getting hired. And I think there's a lot of perceptions that immigrants should only be limited when we talk about filling the, the, the labor shortage. Um, immigrant labor is just seen as the ones that do manual labors on the farms and stuff like that. But immigrants, um, as you mentioned, um, bring so much more to our, our communities. And if we invest in that and give them the opportunity to excel, um, I think that's that will propel our um, economy forward. And when immigrants feel included and feel like they um, are seen beyond just manual laborers and actually given those opportunities to excel, um, I think that's what's going to push our, our province forward um, and make New Brunswick a, a leader in Canada. Yeah. What is one thing New Brunswick needs to unlearn? Um, I think it would m mostly be related to the narrative that a lot of us have um, internalized um, relating to New Brunswick always being last or not good enough. I've, I've just been here for four years, but I, I can I sense that narrative. And I think a lot of people have internalized that narrative that we're last. And um, so we need to combat that that narrative that New Brunswick isn't good enough or can't succeed you can't succeed in New Brunswick. So I think if we combat that narrative, then people will actually be more likely to stay here as well because um, they'll feel like there's potential um, in New Brunswick. And I think another thing is to um, invest in in the people that stay here, be innovative, innovative as, oh, my light is flickering, as Mary mentioned, <laughs> um, not just following the norm, um, but doing what no one else is doing radical ideas make us stand out make us more attractive to to immigrants if we're trendsetters in certain areas and i think um financial aid for international students might be it thank you husoni i've, I've told my parents generation that i feel like they have a post-industrial ptsd about <laughs> this province and we need to move away from it Dr. Paul Maserol, Husoni Raymond, Mary Butler, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. This is going to drop tomorrow morning. We encourage everyone to download, subscribe, share. We'll be back next week with Strategic Sectors. This has been Turning Point. 